Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Zoe Robin, a Fulbright Research Fellow based in Amman, Jordan, where she focuses on climate change and water issues. I came across an article that she wrote recently for New Lines Institute about a crisis that is getting very little coverage and yet is critically important, water shortage in the West Bank and Jordan. I was intrigued, and I wanted to find out more, so I've asked her on to the podcast. Zoe, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. Well, uh, rather ironically, uh, Zoe, uh, we're talking about water shortage, but um, the rain is pelting down here in London. Uh, but look, in that paper you wrote last month for New Lines Institute, that was before the attack on the West Bank town of Hawara by Israeli settlers, you considered the ways in which water could be weaponized by Israel. The illegal settler occupation has been going on for decades, incrementally taking land from Palestinians, but equally, water has been taken. Can we go back to 1993 and the Oslo Accord as a starting point for how the theft of Palestinian water was formalized? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the Oslo Accords really form the basis of who controls water in Israel and Palestine today, which in some sense is remarkable because when they were signed in 1993, these agreements were only meant to be temporary. But instead, this framework has lasted almost over 25 years. And so the agreements ended up giving Israel 80% of the water from the West Bank aquifer, and then it gave the rest to Palestinians. Um, the agreement has actually no limits on the amount of water that Israel can take, but it does put limits on the amount of water that the Palestinians can take. And so after this agreement was put in place, the Palestinians weren't able to get to that limit of water that they agreed to because of some technical reasons. Um, and so the according to the Israeli group B'Tselem right now, Palestinians are only getting around 14% of the water in the aquifer. So at this point, you have a situation where the Israeli water company is taking the majority of this shared water source and then selling it back to the Palestinians. And they are providing more water than was agreed to in the Oslo Agreement, actually about double. But the water that they're getting is still really insufficient on a per capita basis, and it's much less than the Israelis are getting on a per capita basis. And, you know, there's one other point that I wanted to mention here, which is that the agreement also established a joint water committee that was supposed to serve as a way to coordinate water distribution between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Um, it had equal membership between both sides. But at this point, the committee has been completely, you know, dysfunctional. Um, and over the years, the Palestinians have accused the committee of essentially being biased and approving their water projects at lower rates. They've said that it's difficult for them to get anything through the committee in a timely manner. And I think for Palestinians, the impacts of this are felt on, on a day-to-day -day basis where people simply don't have enough water and they need licenses in the West Bank in order to drill more wells, in order to meet their, their huge population water deficit. Um, and meanwhile, Israeli forces are destroying unauthorized wells and cisterns. So the, the situation is pretty dire, and I, I do think you're absolutely right that it has its roots in this 1993 agreement. And, you know, is it the case that the Palestinians just didn't negotiate well, or is it a case of bad faith uh, post uh, the negotiations by the Israelis, or is it a combination of, of those factors? 
Yeah, I, I think both factors are at play here. When you look at the Joint Water Committee, I think it's important to realize that it fell out of dysfunction, sure, and there have been numerous boycotts by the Palestinian authorities of that committee. But at the same time, the starting point was unfair. So you're entering into this committee on unequal footing. Mm. Now, in practical terms, and we touched upon this a little bit, but what does it mean for Palestinians that the Israelis effectively control 85% of the water in the West Bank? Yeah, so I think on a very practical level, it means that this is affecting the economy. It's affecting people's health. It's affecting the way that people live. Um, people living in the West Bank, they look around and they look at people living in settlements beside them. They see flourishing gardens and swimming pools, and there's this huge contrast with their own lives. So during past instances of drought, the per water capita consumption of water of Israelis was about 10 times the water consumption of Palestinians. And in some cases, in some Palestinian villages, the per capita consumption actually fell below the limit that the World Health Organization recommends. So this means that it's actually affecting human health. And it, this is being felt across the West Bank. Um, Al Jazeera and Haaretz, among some other news outlets, have reported on water shortages that resulted in homes not having running water and factories being shut down. And so to make up for these issues in the summer, especially, Palestinians are having to spend a lot more money to get their water by buying mineral water or water that's brought in using these large tankers. Um, and as we heard, uh, the Palestinian water minister actually addressed COP27 and talked about some of these issues and how they're being felt as well. You know, when you mentioned this, too, that the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, is actually destroying Palestinian wells. The Palestinians can't get permits. We've seen this with housing as well, haven't we? But just to tell our listeners a little bit about that, because that sounds particularly shocking, given that the area is in, in, a, in a drought crisis situation most of the time. Right, exactly. And to some extent, it does make sense to centralize these decisions about water pumping, right? Because you don't have sufficient water resources in the region at large. And so you do need to coordinate to make sure that there's enough water for everyone. But the issue here is that who's actually setting the terms and who's considered to have a right to those water resources um, is typically only the Israelis. So the Palestinians, when they're being included in the conversations, I would argue it's typically more of a token inclusion. And I think the Palestinians have felt that as well. Yeah. And the IDF then, in effect, becomes uh, what uh, an agent of the politicization, the weaponization of water. Exactly, exactly. Mm. You make the point that the Palestinians, although you, they, they did have a presence at COP27, have been sidelined pretty much in climate change conferences and conversation. Can you speak about that and the threat it poses to the water rights of Palestinians? Yeah, so I, I think the word sidelining is also interesting to use because, you know, as we were just talking in your previous question about tokenization in these contexts and in the context of the larger discussion about water coordination going back to the, the Joint Water Committee, because um, in that committee, the Palestinians have been invited to participate, but of course, the committee was biased. I mean, they're, they're operating within a framework where they have less power from the outset. 
So you can argue back and forth about how the committee actually functions and why it became dysfunctional. But the fact is that it was never really two equal parties coming together to reach an agreement. And I think the same can be said of a lot of these climate agreements. So it's difficult to parse whether the Palestinians were actually invited from the outset or whether they chose not to participate in a process that they just felt was unfair from the outset. When you're engaging with the negotiations with in a framework that actually denies your right to control the water resources below your feet, I think the Palestinians are asking themselves whether their participation would actually legitimize an overall system that they feel is unfair. But regardless, Bill, you're, you're absolutely right that the mere fact that Palestinians are absent from these agreements actually threatens them even more. Um, the group EcoPeace that started many of these initiatives between Israel and Jordan that we saw come up at COP27 initially conceived of it as a deal that would include the Palestinians. And so this was really supposed to be a way of helping them get their water rights. But in reality, it's almost a continuation and potentially legitimizing uh, the status quo. Mm, which is, as you say, unequal. Now, now you've mentioned Jordan. Jordan is also caught in the web of an unequal treaty. Uh, that was the treaty signed, a peace deal in 1994. Can you go through the details on the Israeli-Jordan peace uh, treaty pertaining to water and, and how it impacts on Jordan? Yeah, yeah. So the treaty between Israel and Jordan, I think it should be said, is still functioning, even though there's there's been a fair amount of turbulence between the two countries. And this treaty also provided for a joint water committee, which was able to work properly um, and even had some successes navigating previous instances of drought between Israel and Jordan. So it's important to view this treaty in the context of, of this overall relationship. But at the same time, when it entered into this agreement, Israel had the upper hand when we're talking about water. They have really, really advanced water technology, and they're also located upstream from Jordan. So the agreement set a set amount of water that is allocated to Israel, and then it says that Jordan gets the rest of the flow. And it's interesting that they chose to take this approach um, instead of doing a percentage. And I think that people looking towards the future and they're seeing the impacts of climate change, they're seeing the reduced precipitation, and I think they're worrying about how much water will be left after Israel takes its overall cut. At the same time, this agreement is also pretty old and it's out of touch with the water demands of today. So Jordan's population has exploded as refugees entered the country and refugee populations in Israel hasn't even come close. So Jordan is becoming even more dependent on the Jordan River Basin to feed its population, while Israel is increasingly using desalination to cover its water needs. And so the result is that Jordan is now paying Israel for more water because it's in such a desperate situation. And meanwhile, Israel can actually afford to spare some water because of its ability in desalination. And so in addition to having to spend more money, uh, people in Jordan are feeling the impacts of not having enough water while also having their population grow by a lot. There's water rationing in place here, especially in, in some communities that have high populations of refugees and that are low income. And similar to the situation in the West Bank, people are turning to other really, really expensive places to get their water. It sounds like a a, a really, really difficult uh, situation one can see contestation between refugees and and Jordanians in place over water issues. Um, what about the 
Jordan Israel Water for Energy deal. Um, what is it and how vulnerable has that deal left Jordan? Yeah, so the, the water energy deal was pioneered by this group called EcoPeace, um, which I mentioned earlier, that has offices in Israel, Jordan, and Palestine. And the group of engineers and environmentalists had this idea for a water energy nexus, which has also been called the Green Blue Deal. But essentially, it would establish a solar energy community between Jordan, Israel, and Palestine. And the idea was that Israel and Palestine would produce desalinated water and sell it to Jordan, while Jordan would sell Palestine and Israel renewable energy. And the rationale behind it was that each partner would be able to use its competitive advantage. So Jordan has this competitive advantage being able to produce solar power at a cheaper rate than Israel. And at the same time, the organization was arguing that this could actually help Palestine to become more independent from Israel by having it take control over desalination. So the larger diplomatic, the larger vision was, you know, diplomatic, um, that this would result in sustainable and long-term peace. But the issue is that this idea, when it's actually being put into practice, is pretty different than what was articulated by EcoPeace. So towards the end of 2021, Jordan, Israel, and the UAE signed an agreement saying that they were going to work towards this kind of water energy exchange where Israel was going to provide desalinated water and Jordan was going to provide solar power with the solar technology um, being supplied by an Emirati firm. But the major difference here, of course, is that this initial version had the Palestinians as a key player, and this arrangement left out the Palestinians completely. And the same arrangement was then affirmed at COP27 without Palestinian involvement. So this type of arrangement, which is really being applauded by politicians all over the world, and especially diplomats from the U.S., proceeded without input from Palestinian leaders and is actually pretty far from the vision that EcoPeace laid out. So going back to your question about Jordan, the current model of the deal gives Israel significantly more leverage um, than Jordan. So Jordan would be supplying about 2% of Israel's overall power, while Israel would be supplying water that's equivalent to about 20% of Jordan's water usage. So that's a huge proportion for Jordan. Um, but I also want to make the point that without the GEAL, Jordan is very much at risk too. The country just, you know, does not have enough water. And even while it's trying to build up its own desalination capacity, it's pretty unlikely to reach its water requirements in any sustainable and cost-effective manner without getting some big portion of water resources from Israel. So in some sense, Jordan really lacks alternatives to try. Wow, that's very interesting. I mean, it's interesting on two grounds. One, that the Palestinians have been cut out again, but also that the Jordanians are really in a vulnerable place uh, because, as you point out, the the needs, their needs for water are, are much greater than Israel's need for power. And Israel can get its power elsewhere if, you know, if the deal fell through. But water, I mean, water is the essential. Right, exactly. And Jordan has been trying to build up its desalination capacity, but it's it's nowhere near where it needs to be at this point. Now, we spoke about uh, Huara at the beginning of our conversation, but I'm just wondering, and then, of course, the events have been ongoing, the, the settler rampages and the celebration of the rampages um, by settlers. Given those events and the extraordinary drift of Israel towards illiberalism presided over by a government that many now say is fascistic 
How concerned are you that water will be weaponized to further advance the settler project of driving Palestinians from their land? Yeah, so in some sense, Israel doesn't need to advance the settler project from an environmental perspective of driving Palestinians from their land because it's already done so and it's done so so successfully. Um, it's controlling the vast amount of water extraction and distribution. And whenever Palestinians are trying to dig wells to nourish their farms and, and to give water to, to their communities, Israeli forces are routinely destroying them. Um, the Israeli company is currently pumping water from aquifers in the West Bank and then selling it back to the Palestinians. So Palestinians are already living in very dire straits that almost completely deny them the rights to control the water resources that are below their very feet. And I think that's making it very hard to maintain communities and sustain their economy in the West Bank. Palestinians have for a really long time been aware of these dynamics and been aware that um, the Israeli government can essentially weaponize water. The Palestinian writer um, Ramzi Baroud has written about growing up in a refugee camp and having his family rush to fill up water buckets and bottles whenever there were clashes with Israeli forces on the outskirts of the refugee camp. So at the same time that I do think these dynamics have been going on for a while, these climate deals also have the effect of giving it an air of legitimacy. As we've been discussing, these climate deals fail to include Palestinians, and they're being applauded by politicians and diplomats from around the world. No one's really talking about how we can change the deals in order to give Palestinians the rights over the resources that they live beside. Mm. There's also, I mean, this agreement between Israel and Jordan that was signed at COP27 that I think we should mention that focused on cleaning up the Jordan River, which also doesn't include Palestinian leadership, even though the Jordan River literally borders the West Bank. And so I, I think these all have the effect of affirming the idea that that Palestinian water rights are are far away. Now, given what you're telling us, what should the response of the international community and most particularly the U.S., because it's so crucial in its support of Israel. What should the response to the U.S. be? Yeah, this is a good question. Um, first of all, I want to say that I think these climate deals are really urgently needed, especially for Jordan, because it simply doesn't have enough water for its population. But the key point here is that these deals are establishing new environmental infrastructure in the region. And we should also look at the political narrative that it's supporting. So in this case, when the governments of Israel and Jordan come together and they imagine a water energy nexus, we have to recognize that water and power infrastructure is really expensive and it takes a lot of time. So in theory, we're, we're talking about something that could have really long-term consequences. And I think it should be viewed by American politicians and diplomats as an opportunity where they can help work towards a Palestinian state and reimagine the control of water resources. In Israeli politics domestically, um, I think it should be said that it's not the right wing who's pushing these environmental deals with Jordan. Uh, it's not the right wing who's thinking about supplying water in Jordan in order to gain more political leverage. Instead, it's coalitions on the left who are really interested in cultivating better relationships with their neighbors. But I think the issue here is that the starting point is flawed. And it stems from that Oslo agreement that we talked about before, because Palestinians aren't able to get involved on equal footing. 
And so I think the starting point should really be renegotiating this overall infrastructure of water rights and finding a system of water distribution that actually works. Um, one bright spot here is also that Israel has a lot of desalination capacity at this point, which it didn't have in the 90s. And so Israel has a surplus from its desalination plants, which is pretty incredible. And Israeli innovation is largely to thank for that. And this desalination policy can actually be um, viewed in the context of Jordan's massive population surge and, and show us that there is more flexibility. Um, and it's actually time to, to revisit these water agreements. You know, there is an argument that surely Israel and, and all the other players, such as the UAE, will recognize that uh, a crisis in water in Jordan, a crisis in water in Palestine is going to create even more insecurity, lead to even more disruption, violence. Surely they will see the kind of points that you're making and making so clearly. Yeah, well, well, I hope so. I mean, the U.S. has always been involved in negotiating these uh, water agreements between Israel and Jordan and also Israel and Palestine. And so I, I am hopeful that the U.S. can continue to leverage its role and advocate for a more equitable um, distribution of water. Yeah, but at the same time, and I look at the Biden administration and, and the response to Huara, for example, uh, the, the fact that they're letting uh, the finance minister, there's a little Smotrich in Smotrich, the man who said that Tawara should be uh, wiped off the face of the earth. You know, the responses from uh, the uh, State Department, it's all pretty lame, isn't it, in face of what, of what the Israelis are doing? So is it realistic to expect that this administration or indeed a future administration and, and God forbid should... To Donald Trump return, it'd probably be even worse. But that any of this is going to happen, Zoe? Yeah, I have to agree that it it seems very unlikely. I think it was last week or the week before that Netanyahu issued a tweet saying that the build, the building of settlements in the West Bank was going to continue and there won't be any freezes. Um, and, and we continue to see settler violence against the Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. You know, looking looking towards the Biden administration, Biden has historically been a very, very pro-Israel politician who's typically reluctant to get involved in Israeli domestic politics. It is important, though, that he spoke out about Netanyahu's plan to compromise the independence of Israel's judiciary. So it seems like the Biden administration is maybe beginning to realize how extremist the government of Netanyahu can be. Um, but at the same time, it's hard to deny just how ingrained the denial of Palestinian water rights has become. So it seems like a, a very distant possibility that the Biden administration will push the Israelis hard or in any meaningful way to restore water rights to the Palestinians. You know, this is an issue that's so important to so many people of all ages across all different communities in the West Bank who don't have enough water. But at the same time, it's really left out of the headlines. So I think it's important to sort of initiate these conversations and to draw attention to the environmental, but also political aspects of this. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think that that the water issue has been left out of the headlines, as you say. And, and yet, clearly, water is 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 the essence of life. Without it, we don't we don't exist. Uh, but there is. Surely a question to be asked about the Palestinian Authority. I mean, there hasn't been an election since 2005. Abbas has been in power for such a long, long time. Surely 
the PA has has a role to play in this in this really dreadful uh, situation that has developed over over well decades. Of course, yeah, of course. I think the the Palestinian Authority also has a role to play, and the water infrastructure in. Palestine is also pretty lacking. USAID um, has come in to, to help them update some of their water infrastructure. So I'm hopeful that that things could get better from that perspective. Mm. Well, okay. Well, Zoe, thanks so much for, for drawing this uh, to the attention of our listeners. It's a very, very important point and a very important article you've written. So I, I thank you for that. And I thank you for our conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bill, for making time for this conversation. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Zoe Robin, a Fulbright Research Fellow based in Amman, Jordan, where she focuses on climate change and water issues. You can find her New Lines article at newlinesinstitute.org. I recommend it highly. Since we launched our podcast less than three years ago, it's been listened to 125,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I hope you're enjoying our podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter, and how to get a free trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Zoe. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.